Welcome to the Unconventional RD Podcast, where we inspire dietitians to think outside of the traditional employment box and create their own unconventional income streams. We'll talk all things online business to help you start, grow, and scale your own digital empire. As you may or may not know, Google recently rolled out the March 2023 core algorithm update. It ran from March 15th to March 28th, and like all Google algorithm updates, was designed to improve the quality of the search results and rank the most helpful content possible. And as usual, Google is pretty mum on what the algorithm was designed to do. So SEOs and online business owners are left to try and do their own ad hoc analyses to determine which factors may have played a role in all the ranking changes. Sometimes SEOs who run agencies and have access to the Google Analytics or Google Search Console data to a lot of their clients' sites will attempt to look for patterns of traffic gains or losses amongst their clients in certain industries and then dig deeper to figure out you know, what those sites might have had in common that could have led to those traffic losses or gains. Other people look at rank tracker tools like SEMrush or visibility tools like Systrix to analyze the impact of the updates on various industries. These tools can typically give aggregate reports on the amount of ranking volatility seen in different niches and a summary of the websites that saw big traffic gains and losses in different niches. Of course, these types of analyses are far from perfect and are subject to tons of biases and the discovery of correlations that really may have nothing to do with causation, etc. So please keep in mind that much of the analyses of algorithm updates that you will see are just conjecture and theory. No one really knows what's going on behind Google's black algorithm box, but if you're anything like me, I still find it really fun to speculate. There was a lot of chatter on Twitter and in SEO forums that perhaps this algorithm update was attempting to put more emphasis on the new E in EEAT. If you remember, a few months ago, Google updated the concept of EAT, which was expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness, to be EEAT. They added an E at the beginning that stands for experience. And this is the first core update that has come out since the development of this new experience concept. So some people were theorizing that maybe Google is working on baking this factor into the core algorithm. However, interestingly, just a few weeks after the March core update completed, Google announced yet another update rolling out, and this one is called the April 2023 Reviews Update, which is focused on improving the quality of reviews of all kinds, not just product reviews, which had been the focus of most previous review style updates. Google specified that this update, the April 2023 reviews update, is designed to apply to all articles, blog posts, pages, or similar first-party standalone content written with the purpose of providing a recommendation, giving an opinion, or providing analysis. So essentially, 
any content that is reviewing or recommending or evaluating something and giving an opinion is now subject to these tighter quality control measures, which definitely includes this notion of experience that Google has been harping on. Again, a lot of people think this is sort of one way that they are combating the whole rise of AI content, demonstrating that you, the person creating this content, actually have firsthand experience with the thing that you are reviewing and you're not just using ChatGPT or reading Amazon reviews and trying to summarize them, for example. It's very important that if you are creating content that is providing a recommendation, giving an opinion, or providing analysis, that you are demonstrating this level of firsthand experience. So ways you can do that include things like using videos or pictures to show yourself using a product or experiencing a location or a service. You can use language that shows that you have firsthand experience, like our testing shows or based on our experience, etc. And then you always want to make sure that you are creating content designed to genuinely help someone, not just designed to rank and make affiliate sales. All of these are important things you can do to create content that demonstrates high EEAT. Of course, that's just one small thing. There's lots of other factors, but uh, those are things that are particularly standing out right now related to this whole concept of experience. So overall, I would say that the impact of the March update and now the April reviews update, which is still rolling out, is a little murky. So since I work most closely with people creating content in the health and food spaces, I thought I'd talk a little bit about ranking changes and trends that I've been noticing in those spaces. And some of the trends I'm going to talk about are actually a lot further reaching than just this latest update. And they may have been in the works for many years or months. Uh, But now that enough time has passed, it's become easier to pick up these patterns. So we'll dive into some of the trends, the longer trends that I've been seeing in these spaces as well. And then Google also had a Google Health related announcement. So Google Health is like an arm of Google where they focus on health topics. And they had like a little press conference they released in March. And I think some of the things that they talked about are going to have an impact on our industry. So anyone in the health related space who is creating content online should be aware of these developments. So I want to chat about that to close out this episode. So let's get into it. Okay. Let's start by chatting about some of the impacts from the March core algorithm update, particularly on the health space. Overall, some historically large and dominant editorial style health websites like Healthline.com and their sister site Medical News Today seem to be losing their ranking strongholds. And in contrast, government websites and large medical facilities like Cleveland Clinic have been gaining or maintaining their rankings for the most part. And from what I have seen, in some topic areas, smaller niche experts have been able to rank well on the first page of Google for areas that they have appropriate experience, expertise, authority, and trust in. So let's start by diving into the health line rankings decrease a little bit, since I find it so interesting. And if you are a student in my SEO Made Simple course, you know that I've posted about this inside the private students-only Facebook group over the last month or so, and um, we had an interesting discussion about it. But I wanted to talk about it here as well. I did a little deeper analysis and thought it would be fun to go over some of my findings. 
So according to SEMrush estimates, Healthline is currently getting an estimated 82 million monthly organic search visitors from Google, which is down significantly from its peak of 280 million monthly visitors from organic search in May of 2021. So that's essentially a 70% decrease in organic traffic over the last two-ish years. I mean, granted, most of us would absolutely love to have a website with 82 million monthly visitors, right? Like Healthline is by all means still a huge dominating force in online search, but it's just not quite at the level it once was. And looking at the graph of their traffic estimates in SEMrush, it appears to have been a pretty steady traffic decline over those last two years, including a continued drop after this latest core update. So what the heck happened? Of course, no one knows for sure, and this is all just conjecture on my part, so I want to be very clear about that. But my hypothesis is that perhaps this is an example of Healthline kind of doing too much, covering too many topics, and not demonstrating sufficient EEAT to rank for some of the topics that they are creating content around. Kind of like the jack of all trades, master of none idea. If you look at their website, they are covering a lot of topic areas. Everything from medical conditions, nutrition, mental health, fitness, skincare, women's health, sexual health, and sleep all on one site. And on top of that, they have separate sections for product reviews, recipes, health condition communities, drug information, and more. I mean, can you really be the go-to authority on all of those things on one site? I mean, I'd be a little skeptical, personally. Additionally, Healthline has changed the way that they produce content over the last few years as well. I know some branches of their website have transitioned from what they used to do was pay credentialed practitioners, like you had to have at least a master's in nutrition, for example, to create content in their nutrition section, That's how it used to work years and years ago when I wrote for them. But then they changed the model over time and started just having, you know, less experienced journalists create the content. And I assume they probably paid them a lower rate to do so. And then they would have the credentialed people just act as reviewers for the content. So they're just kind of fact checking and then kind of co-signing that this is a good post with accurate information. And there's really no way of knowing whether that change in authorship and their whole process there played any role in their ranking drops. But I do think it's an interesting data point to keep in mind as we think about some of these changes and as we talk about what it means to be a trustworthy source in the eyes of Google. And so if you filter this idea through the lens of EEAT, it's pretty clear that the original journalists creating the content, so not the the fact checkers or the medical reviewers, but just the original people drafting the blog post, those people probably don't have much firsthand experience in a lot of the health-related topics they may be writing about because they're journalists first and foremost, right? Like they're freelance writers. They're not practitioners, boots on the ground type of people. So when they're pitted against content created by actual experts with real-world experience, perhaps it's just not quite up to snuff from that EEAT angle. And I poked around at the type of keywords that Healthline is ranking for 
to see what they're ranking for right now and comparing that to what they used to rank for back at their traffic peak in 2021. So like what changed? What were they ranking for that they're no longer ranking for today, for example? And again, I just want to emphasize here, Healthline is still a huge player in the nutrition space online, and they remain a website that anyone creating content in the nutrition niche should keep an eye on. They currently rank very well for a lot of short tail, super high volume and super high difficulty diet related keywords, like the keyword Mediterranean diet, currently searched 450,000 times a month which is an insane amount of times. And they rank, I think, number one or number two for that. Uh, And the difficulty score there is 100. So um, Healthline's domain authority is really, really high. So they can compete on these incredibly difficult keywords. But the point is they're ranking for some really strong, high-volume diet-related terms still today. So Mediterranean diet, keto diet, intermittent fasting, healthy snacks, high-protein foods, high-fiber foods, so sort of these generic, broad diet-related terms. They also rank pretty highly for a lot of articles on other food-related keywords like dragon fruit, fenugreek, chia seeds, etc. They also have high-ranking articles on various types of supplements like ashwagandha, CBD gummies, magnesium glycinate, and castor oil. And interestingly, They still rank for some other sort of random high-volume keywords like skin lesions, imposter syndrome, narcissist, cyst, sativa versus indica, pregnancy symptoms, delta-8, which is like a type of THC, and prednisone. And if you compare that, though, to what they were ranking for in May 2021, they used to actually rank for a much broader set of high-volume keywords. Keto diet was still their number one keyword back then, but also back then the monthly search volume was nearly triple what it is now. It was like almost a million searches per month in 2021. But they also were ranking for some very weird keywords that they're no longer ranking for. Things like Prince Albert piercing, ringworm, orgasm, coffee, diuretic, strep throat, hives, hypertrophy, spider bites, scabies, and diarrhea. So that's a pretty different set of keywords, right? Like it seems like now they're still doing well in the diet-related space, but some of these more medically things, they've lost their rankings. But again, that makes sense to me because if you look at who wrote those articles that they used to rank well for, a lot of them were, again, written by journalists. Sometimes those journalists had a health background, like maybe they were nurses, but the articles were not usually written by MDs or niche experts in those topics. So I just was curious and Googled some of the keywords now to take a look at who is ranking at the top instead of Healthline. And it seems like they lost uh, rankings for some of these big summary articles on those broad medical topics or just broad topics in general to more niche expert sites. So to, to bring it back to like the nutrition example, Healthline used to rank number two for the keyword coffee, which I didn't write down how many times that searched per month, but probably quite a few times. So that was probably bringing them a lot of traffic. Uh, so they had a post about the health benefits of coffee, and that was ranking number two for just the search for coffee on Google. Today, that same post is in position number 11 for the keyword coffee. So they're no longer even on page one when someone searches for coffee. So who is ranking on page one now instead? Well, the search results, at least when I looked this up the other day, 
At the top was an ad to buy coffee. Then there was a local map to find a coffee shop near you. Then there was the page about coffee on Wikipedia. And Wikipedia was actually one of the big winners in the March update. So that reference site did well, moved up in the search results for a lot of things. This could be an example of that where they think, oh, someone wants information on some broad topic. Wikipedia is an authoritative source. Let's put that near the top of the search results. Underneath that, there is the Coffee Bean website for the coffee shop chain Coffee Bean. Then there is a post from the National Coffee Association of the USA titled, What is Coffee? Hint, hint, see how that's a website with niche expertise that is ranking pretty highly. Then there's the Encyclopedia Britannica entry on coffee. So again, reference sites doing well here. There's an opportunity to buy coffee on Amazon. There's a link to Pete's Coffee website. There is a nutrition post about coffee from Harvard University. So here we go. This is like the first health-related post. Remember, Healthline used to have the number two ranking spot with that article on the health benefits of coffee. That has been overtaken by a Harvard University post on the health benefits of coffee. Then there's a link to a post from Tasting Table where they rank the 31 best coffee brands. Then there's a link to the Starbucks website. And then again, another post about the health benefits of coffee, this time coming from John Hopkins Medicine. So I think some of the declines here are due to changes in search intent, and some are due to changes in EEAT and topical expertise. So right now, the search results are showing roughly a 50-50 split, like half of the results targeting purchase intent, giving people the opportunity to purchase coffee or go to the website of a company that sells coffee, and half of them are targeting informational intent. And Google appears to be giving heavy preference to niche authority sites and medical authority sites. So for example, of the sites that are providing information, the ones ranking on page one are Wikipedia, the National Coffee Association of the United States, Britannica Encyclopedia, Harvard University, Tasting Table, and John Hopkins Medicine. I mean, wow, those are some authoritative and or highly niched sources right there, right? So this is just one small example of a pattern that I've been seeing develop in the search results over time. This emphasis on more established, accredited sources of health information, like nonprofits, government associations, or medical schools, and or niche experts, like, you know, that coffee association, with lots of experience or expertise on a specific topic. Those are the sites that are winning out over broad publishing style websites that are for profit and that are trying to cover kind of every topic under the sun. So just to highlight this example, there are a lot of other similar websites of this type that have seen decreases in traffic over the last few years as well. WebMD, for example, they're currently getting also around 80 million monthly organic sessions, uh, according to SEMrush, but that's down over 50% from their peak in January of last year. Medical News Today, which is also owned by Healthline, is down about 50% since October 2021. RxList, which is owned by the same company that owns WebMD, has also been seeing a steady decline over the last few years. That's a website with information on medications, but it's, again, a for-profit company with this information. 
MedicineNet.com, again, owned by the same company that owns WebMD and RxList. They've had a huge drop since July 2021. They went from an estimated 30 million monthly sessions to now 4 million. Like, ooh, that hurts. VeryWellMind.com, which is a company owned by DotDash Media, which is another big online media conglomerate. They've been also on the decline since January 22. They're down about 50% since then. And that is a editorial style website focused on kind of like psychology related things. Eatthis.com down from 6 million in September 2021 to now 1.6 million today. Spinehealth.com with a dash in between went from 5 million to 1.4 million. Bodybuilding.com has gone from 14 million to just 1 million over the last five years. So you're kind of seeing these editorial type websites just run by for-profit companies losing favor in Google. And in contrast, other government and medical establishment websites have remained relatively stable or grown. So things like NIH.gov, ClevelandClinic.org, which is a hospital, MountSinai.org, USDA.gov, PennMedicine.org, AAD.org, which I don't remember what, that's like an association of something medical, I don't remember now. Uh, healthpartners.com, which was a hospital, uclahealth.org, hospitaldiabetes.org, an association. The only website that when I was just browsing like large health-related websites and looking at the traffic impacts from this update, the only one that I saw that was not a government or medical establishment that had really good growth from this update was thebump.com, which had an over 20% boost in traffic from this update. But it's not run, obviously, by any sort of large association. It is a website with pregnancy advice for women that is run by the same media group that runs the knot.com, which is for weddings, and the bash.com, which I haven't been to that one, but I think maybe that maybe is like maybe bachelorette party related. I'm not sure. But yeah, interesting. I'll have to dig into that and see what they might be doing well, but they're like one of the few exceptions. And who knows if that'll stick. It could have just been an accidental boost. It might not stay. So to sum up my thoughts, maybe Google is no longer favoring large conglomerate sites that cover every topic under the sun in the health space. Government and medical facility websites are gaining rankings more than editorial websites, so that's something to keep an eye on. And obviously, an individual content creator, like you as a private practice person blogging on a certain health topic, you're never going to have the same EEAT as a large established medical association. So that does make it harder for us to compete for large, broad terms in the health space. So what do we have to do? Niche, niche, niche. So if there is ever a shot to land on page one for competitive terms in your niche, it is by becoming a known niche expert in your space. You need to have a clear niche that can really help you rank better than you perhaps deserve, quote unquote, based on just things like your website age or backlinks. For example, if you search for the keyword phrase, low sodium cheese, The first few results are from large wellness magazines like eatingwell.com and womenshealth.com. Those sites have very high domain authorities, like 77 and 87, respectively. But who is in spot number three? An article from saltsanity.com who has a domain authority of five. Yes, five, and they're in the number three spot on page one. And that website is essentially 
a whole website dedicated to low-sodium living. It's only about one year old. As we see, it has an extremely low domain authority, meaning it has very few backlinks from other websites. But what it does have is topical authority on the low-sodium diet and experience and expertise because the content is created by a chef who currently lives a low-sodium lifestyle. So if you're looking for clear action steps to take away from this episode, number one is to get clear on your niche. Go hard fleshing out articles around one topic you really want to be known for. And don't be afraid to get specific. For example, focus on IBS instead of just generic gut health, picky eating instead of just kids nutrition, low FODMAP diet instead of just healthy eating, kidney stones instead of just renal nutrition, etc. And I know it can feel limiting, But trust me, you will gain traction much faster if you niche down and focus on growing in one area first. That doesn't mean you can't expand later or even build multiple sites in different niches once you get the hang of things. But the last thing you want to do is go too broad, not see any results because you're not sending any clear signals on what you're an expert or an authority on, and then just burn out and decide blogging doesn't work. Number two, put a big focus on improving your EEAT. Again, that's experience, expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness. Not sure how to do this? I highly, highly recommend enrolling in the next version of my SEO Made Simple course, which should be coming out very soon for the latest guidance on how to improve your EEAT. I have completely updated this section of the course with the most up-to-date recommendations for boosting EEAT, including advice on how to improve your homepage, your about page, and your contact page, how to use author bylines, bios, and pages on your site, how to evaluate and improve the digital reputation of both your business and the content creators in your business, how to earn more media mentions and links, how to send strong trust signals from your website by optimizing your footer, having clear editorial processes, highlighting testimonials and ratings, and more. And just so you know, it's not all doom and gloom out there. There are many people in my course who actually did really well from this last update. And even people who were previously hit in some of the previous updates in 2022, some of them are reporting improvements from this latest March update. So I'll just throw out some examples from people in my course who shared their wins. A dietitian in the gut brain health niche is up 50% after this update. Someone in the women's health space is up slightly, which for her, with her current traffic level, she defines that as 50 to 100 additional sessions per day, which, you know, adds up to 1,500 to 3,000 extra sessions per month. So that's great. Someone in the vegan niche is up about 50%. Cancer niche is up. Gut health and food sensitivities are up. PCOS is up. And another PCOS niche is up as well, over 50% in March. So lots of positive results for the people inside my course, which is great. So next, I want to switch over and talk about the impact of the March 2023 core update in the food blogging space. I will admit that I feel more strongly dialed into the health space than the food space at this moment in time. So my analysis of the impact on the food blogging space may not be as strong. But aside from specifically what happened during the March core update, I'd love to touch on just a few general trends in this space that you should be aware of if you are a food blogger. I didn't notice any mega, mega changes in rankings in the food blogging space after this update. Someone posted a poll in the Facebook group Food Bloggers Central, which is a free Facebook group where a lot of food bloggers hang out. 
and they were asking what impacts people have seen from the March update. Over 180 people responded to the poll. 70% said they saw no significant changes from the update. 15% noticed a modest increase in organic traffic, and 15% saw a significant decrease in traffic. No one on the poll noted a super large spike in traffic. And these results make a lot of sense. I mean, most people saw no, no big changes, but 15% of people seem to have had improvements and another 15% saw losses. Of course, this makes sense because if one person goes down in the rankings, someone else has to move up to take that spot. So the amount of people who had increases should also be roughly the same as the amount of people who had decreases, and that rang true in this poll. But aside from ranking fluctuations, I think there are some general trends in this space to be aware of. First is the rise of different forms of content, especially on mobile search results. You know, maybe six or seven years ago, the recipe niche was mostly dominated by plain recipe blog posts ranking on the first page of Google. Video was definitely present, and at that time, it was a way to stand out amongst the competition, but not everyone was doing it, and it didn't always seem necessary to rank well in Google. Today, in 2023, according to SEMrush, roughly 50% of mobile searches and one-third of all desktop searches in the food and drink category display video in the top 20 search results. So if you are a food blogger, video is no longer a nice-to-have. It's really a must-have in order to be competitive and really capture all the opportunity that exists in this space. At this moment in time, SEMrush only tracks the presence of regular video carousels in the search results. But savvy bloggers who are paying attention know that there are two other types of carousels that show up just as frequently on mobile these days in the food and drink space. And that is Google Web Stories and short form video like TikTok, Facebook Reels, or YouTube Shorts. I believe that these additional forms of content creation are also becoming must-haves if you want to capture as much space in the search results as possible. For example, if you search for snickerdoodle cookies on your phone on Google, this is what you'll see in the results. You'll see two regular recipe blog posts at the top, and note that those do include video, a recipe carousel, which of course you can get featured in if you use a recipe card in your post, Again, if you don't know what that is, definitely put your name on the waitlist for my course at seowaitlist.com to get notified when it opens up again soon. I walk you through all the steps for publishing an SEO-optimized recipe in the course, including how to use and optimize your recipe card plugin. Then there's a people also ask box, a knowledge panel about snickerdoodle cookies with information pulled from Wikipedia and the Google Knowledge Graph, and that little call-out box also includes another highlight of the number one ranked recipe and a YouTube video as well. Then there's some sh a shopping box to purchase snickerdoodle cookies, two more regular recipe posts, then a short videos box that contains two YouTube short videos, one TikTok video, and one Facebook reel about snickerdoodle cookies. Underneath that, there is a visual stories box with four Google web stories from bloggers. And of note, these are not the same bloggers who are ranking organically in the four previous search results. So this is an opportunity to get higher placement than you might have with just a blog post. And then of course, underneath that, there's a bunch more regular blog posts. But let's be honest, it's unlikely anyone is scrolling that far to click on these, given so many options for posts and videos above. So if you're not in the top four organic search results for this keyword, you're probably getting very little traffic. 
So in my opinion, if you are a food blogger, I think it is definitely worth your time to create Google Web Stories and short form video in the form of YouTube Shorts, TikTok, and or Reels to increase your chances of ranking well in the search results and getting visibility on your content. Of course, Google Web Stories themselves don't lead directly to traffic to your blog post, but usually people include a link to the full recipe within the story slides. And if you are able to rank for those, a certain percentage of people will click over to view the actual recipe post and you should see an increase in traffic, which of course can then boost your ad revenue as well. With short form video, you'll actually be sending people to a different location than your blog, like your YouTube channel, TikTok profile, or Facebook page. But at least in the case of YouTube shorts, you can monetize those with ads if you get enough views. So it's still a potential win and a new way to build an audience and diversify your business and income in a way that is still evergreen and capitalizing on this concept of SEO. And I don't think you necessarily need to create these forms of video for every single piece of content. What you wanna do is analyze the search results and first see if they are showing web stories or short form video in the search results. And then that's how you'll decide. If those are features in the search results for the keyword you're targeting, then create that type of content. If those types of content are not being shown in the search results at the moment, then there's nothing to try to to optimize for. So it's probably not worth your time to create the web story or the short form video in that scenario. And just for fun, I thought I would highlight an example of a dietitian run food blog that saw gains from the March 2023 core update. The website I found was called mjandhungryman.com. And it's a food blog run by a dietitian named MJ. I don't actually know MJ, but I was so excited. Like I was just randomly clicking on sites to and looking at the impacts of the update. And I found this one first and saw that it had a boost. And I was like, oh, cool, I could talk about this. Then I clicked on the about page and I was like, oh, this is run by a dietitian. This is amazing. This website focuses on simple, wholesome, baby and kid friendly recipes. So see again how the site has a clear niche and is creating topical authority by publishing content around baby and kid-friendly recipes. According to SEMrush estimates, this site is currently getting around 90,000 monthly organic sessions from Google and has really seen a huge surge in growth over the last year or so. For example, in March 2022, they were only getting an estimated 20,000 monthly sessions from Google, but now, roughly one year later, they've almost five times that traffic and are close to 100K monthly sessions. And based on their stats in SEMrush, it looks like this website was actually founded in 2012, so over a decade ago. But they didn't hone in on becoming an authority in the kids' recipe space until closer to 2018, when the founder of the website had her first child and started sharing recipes that she was feeding to her own family. And boom, it took off from there. And what I love about this example is that it's such a good reminder that it's never too late to niche down and find your special area of expertise. MJ had a traditional food blog without much of a niche for six years before pivoting into baby and kid recipes. And once she focused in on that one type of content and became an expert in that, things really took off, both in organic search traffic and on other platforms like social media as well. Today, she has nearly 500,000 followers on Instagram, which I would bet is directly related to that pivot to creating content that helps parents who are feeding their children. See the difference there? The pivot was from sharing generic recipes that weren't really speaking to anyone in particular 
to creating content that was actually helping solve a problem experienced by lots and lots of people. What the heck do I feed my kids, right? And today, her website is ranking for lots of really good keywords, including things like baby yogurt, bento box ideas, baby-led weaning foods, toddler breakfast ideas, school snacks, oatmeal for babies, etc. But I also want to highlight how MJ did not start over completely from scratch with a new website when she decided to pivot. She didn't even change her domain name. She just slowly started shifting her content to feature more and more recipes for babies and kids and continued to lean into what was working. It's really that simple. Don't overthink things. Taking consistent action, in this case, over 10 years of consistent action (laughs) towards your goals, is what will bring you eventual success. Not stopping and starting 10 different business ideas over 10 years when you don't see success one year in. And another interesting website that seems to be kicking butt (laughs) after this core update is tastebetterfromscratch.com. And this website is currently getting record high levels of traffic. SEMrush estimates over 5 million organic visitors per month. And on their actual website, it says on one of the pages that they get over 10 million visitors per month from all traffic sources. And if you do a super conservative estimate of ad revenue on those traffic numbers, let's assume that they're getting maybe $20 in ad revenue per 1,000 website visitors that still adds up to $200,000 per month in ad revenue. Like bananas, right? So I just wanted to highlight something interesting that I noticed that this website was doing, and I just wanted to ponder over how it might be helping with their rankings. I noticed that this brand holds monthly recipe challenges on Facebook and Instagram, where they feature a specific recipe And anyone who makes the recipe and leaves a review on their website is entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And they have 300,000 followers on Facebook and 150,000 on Instagram. So that's a lot of potential people who could be clicking on, consuming, and rating the recipe that they have chosen to feature. And as we know, recipe ratings are displayed in the organic search results And having lots of good ratings can increase the perceived trust of that content and boost the click-through rate if people think that the recipe is going to be really good. Now, this is the, the huge caveat here. I think that legally, this type of promotion where people are incentivized with a prize to leave a review has to follow some pretty strict rules from the FTC regarding disclosure of incentivized reviews and also giving people the option to enter the sweepstakes in an alternate passive way, like via mail entry, without actually having to leave a review for the recipe. And I don't know if this website is aware of these guidelines or if they are following them, but I just want you to know as a listener, if you have ever thought about doing something similar, just be aware that there are really important FTC guidelines you have to follow when doing a sweepstakes or incentivizing reviews. For example, I know Nordstrom's used to do a similar type of review contest for clothing products on their website, but for anyone who submitted a review that then entered them into the sweepstakes, there was a little label on the review on their website that said incentivized review. I have no idea how that might be done on a WordPress website. You'd probably have to custom code something there, 
But yeah, I would definitely make sure that you're compliant with those types of things before trying this type of tactic to avoid potentially hefty fines. But I still think it's an interesting idea. I understand the strategy here. So I think what they're trying to do is handpick the recipes to feature in these contests and include recipes that are targeting really competitive keywords with a lot of search volume. For example, the recipe they're currently running the sweepstakes around is a Belgian waffle recipe that they recently updated and republished with a fresh date. The post is originally from 2018, it got an update in 2021, and now it's updated again in 2023. And the post currently ranks number two for the keyword Belgian waffles, which has 15,000 searches per month. So they're likely getting a lot of traffic and clicks to this recipe by ranking number two right now. The recipe currently has 146 votes and a 4.8 star rating out of five stars. And the number one ranking recipe that they're trying to overtake has 1,600 ratings. So they have a bit to go to compete there. But I, I understand the strategy that they're going for. So overall, my advice for ranking well in 2023 is pretty much on par with everything that we've been discussing on the podcast over the last year or so. More than ever, it is important to become a niche expert in something and really become an authority in your space. Some of this goes beyond just content and into larger brand building efforts as well, like getting published, getting media features and mentions, networking with other big names in your space, and working on becoming a name that people can't help but think of when they think of your niche or the area you work in. And I don't wanna sugarcoat it, these things take time. I think the days of being able to easily throw up a site with a bunch of mediocre content and kind of rank and bank are on their way out. Google really wants to reward authoritative, trustworthy sources of content. So how can you become one? It may not be easy, but I still think it's worth it. Blogging an online business is a long game effort, but the payoff when done right is incredible. You can create income streams for yourself that are passive and evergreen, and a blog can also become an excellent asset that you could choose to sell if you'd like to exit the project and try something else. I know at the top of this episode, I also mentioned that I wanted to talk about some announcements from Google Health related to AI advancements in the medical space and some more details about how Google is highlighting authoritative medical sources. But honestly, I kind of feel like I'm starting to veer into information overload in this episode. So I have decided impromptu right now, I'm going to save that topic and make it its own episode for next week. Then I can do the episode about analyzing a traffic drop the following week. So I really do think some of the things that I dug into related to that March Google Health announcement are hugely important and really tie into some of the things we're seeing and the changes of Google search results in the health space as well. And I haven't seen anyone talking about this or taking this angle of analysis. I'm starting to realize there's not a lot of SEO people who consider themselves experts in the health space. So I'm kind of like, hey, I'm game to take on that mantle. So here we go, (laughs) Um, I'm gonna do it. I'm super excited to report my findings and give you some actionable tips that I have taken away from the information that Google has shared. Essentially, we know that Google wants to share information from trustworthy sources, but what does trustworthy really mean? And how can we work on becoming a trustworthy source ourselves? 
Like I said, I found some really incredibly detailed and actionable information that I can't wait to share with you on this podcast. And of course, I'm including step-by-step implementation tutorials in the updated version of my SEO Made Simple course that will be coming out very soon. So if you're not on the waitlist yet, please add your name and email at seowaitlist.com to get notified when the course opens again, hopefully in the next few weeks. I'm not gonna waste time redoing my webinar yet. I'm just gonna open it up with the sales page direct to buy when I'm done and we'll go from there. So I'm excited, it's almost ready. Thank you for your patience as I update this content. It means the world to me to put out high quality, up-to-date information. Um, So you know, every one to two years, I do a really big refresh of the content in the course and I'm just excited. I've been working really hard on this and I can't wait to share it with you all. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will catch you next week.